Hello friends, Denny Pruto here again, uh, back with another lesson on my approach to sermon preparation. We're still in the area of dealing with details, specifically the matter of making explanation. And under the category of making explanation, I deal with context. The question is, what about context? And how do you deal with context? Remember, once again, I favor the idea of a sequential outline. An outline of several points leading in sequence in a logical pattern and logical flow to the outcome of the point you want the congregation to get when you're preaching. And uh, I maintain that context can be dealt with at any point along the line in the sermon. In fact, context might even be developed at the very end of the sermon rather than at the beginning of the sermon. Another point to make is that I don't believe we need to spend as much time on context as we normally believe we should. Uh, I had a, a seminary student some time ago who uh, preached a sermon in his home congregation uh, for one of my classes. And when he submitted the recording of the sermon, and I listened to it, about half of the sermon was involved in developing context. It was about a 40-minute sermon, and uh, this student spent about 20 of the 40 minutes developing context. And so this meant that less than 20 minutes was actually spent on developing the text that was assigned to this student in this expository preaching class. This is decidedly the wrong way to develop context. Once again, you don't need to spend nearly as much time on developing context as you think you do. Another point is, it depends on the text as to how much time you need to spend on context. I want to give you three examples. The first comes from a sermon I recently did on Hebrews chapter 7 and verses 1 through 10. Uh, the first part of the sermon developed uh, verses 1 through 3 in chapter 7. And I directed the congregation to uh, this section of scripture. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. Then he is also King of Salem, that is, King of Peace. And I told the congregation simply, Genesis 14 introduces Melchizedek to us. And so turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14 and verses 17 through 20. You'll notice that in these verses we find Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is introduced in only three verses of Genesis. There are uh, 14 chapters that discuss Abraham, but only three verses that uh, speak to us about Melchizedek. I'm going to read four verses, 17, 18, 19, and 20. After his return from the defeat of uh, Kedar Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. 
And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. This is part of the background for uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Uh, Lot had decided to go down into Sodom. Uh, this was a lush valley at the time, and Lot uh, determined to take this as his portion and inheritance. Uh, but the king of Sodom rebelled against uh, King Chetar Laomer and uh, the kings associated with uh, this pagan king. And so Chedar Laomer and the associated kings came against Sodom and devastated Sodom and took captive many uh, individuals, many women, many men, and among them Lot. When Abraham heard of this, Abraham mounted about 300 men in his forces and went out to rescue his nephew Lot. And he defeated uh, Chedar Laomer and the associated kings. When Abraham came back from this battle, this is when Abraham came out and met him. That's the context. I spent very little time uh, going over this context, but I think that's all that's needed in setting the context for the text in Hebrews chapter 7 and verses 1 through 10. Uh, we don't need to spend nearly as much time on context as we think we do. And it depends upon the text. Another text is uh, Mark uh, chapter 8 and verses 22 and following. Uh, this is a very unique miracle uh, that uh, was performed by our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Mark chapter 8 verses 22 and following. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought him to him a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the village. And when he had spit in his eyes, and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his uh, hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Now, this is a very unique miracle performed by our Lord Jesus. It is a two-stage miracle. When we ask the context message, we ask, What is the significance of this passage? In other words, why does this passage appear in the flow of the narrative where it does? And in order to determine the answer to this question, uh, we need to look at the context before the passage and after the passage. Context, in this case, plays a much more significant role in understanding the passage. Uh, let's turn back uh, to the earlier pieces of chapter 8. And as we do so, let's remember that this miracle occurs approximately in the center of the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark contains 16 chapters. We're now in chapter 8. And uh, uh, this miracle tells us something then about the book as a whole. 
Uh, going back to the beginning of Mark chapter 8, we note that here we have the feeding of the 4,000. And then in chap chapter 8, verse 11, it says, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, see seeking from him a sign uh, from heaven to test him. <laughs> Jesus had just performed a great sign. And he sighed deeply in his spirit, of course, with some uh, emotion. Uh, Jesus responded to the Pharisees, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given this generation. And he left them, got into a, a boat again, and went to the other side. They sought a sign after uh, the great sign of feeding the 4,000. Verse 14, Now they have, had forgotten to bring bread. The disciples and Jesus are in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And they, be, uh, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Think about this now. Uh, Jesus had just fed the 4,000. The Pharisees wanted to seek a sign from Jesus to test him. They got into a boat and were on the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples were concerned that they had only one loaf of bread. But they had the manufacturer of bread in in the boat with them. Uh, look at the text again. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said seven. He said to them, Do you not yet understand? Don't you see? It's in the aftermath of this discussion that Jesus now performs the two-stage miracle where the man receives his sight and is only partially restored and has partial vision and then he receives his uh, sight completely and has full vision but he begins blind. This it appears as the status of the disciples. They too are blind. Not physically blind, but spiritually blind. It turns out that this miracle is an object lesson for the disciples. Let's turn to the context after the miracle. Verse 27. And as Jesus went on, uh, on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, 
You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them uh, to tell no one about him. In the Gospel of Matthew, it's recorded uh, that uh, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And the response of Peter was, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Spirit of God apparently was beginning to open the eyes of the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter in many respects, was like the blind man who had now received partial vision. Why do I say this? Let's continue on with the context. Verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Uh, inconceivable as it is, Peter, after confessing that Jesus Christ is the very Son of God, when Peter, when the Lord Jesus Christ now begins more plainly to articulate the reason for his coming into the world, Peter rebukes the very Son of God and tells the Son of God, this shall not be. Peter, it appears, has only received partial vision. He remains like the blind man who sees only partially and he has not received complete vision. What is the lesson of uh, this healing? You and I need to have complete vision with regard to Jesus Christ. You and I need to see Him as the Son of God and be able to confess Him as the Son of God and you and I need also to embrace the reason for His coming. And so, in order to understand the truth behind this two-stage miracle, we need to explore the context in which this miracle occurred. And we need to spend a little bit more time examining the context in order to grasp the miracle properly. And since this miracle happens approximately in the center of the book of Matthew, uh, we can see that the beginning of Matthew, it appears, no pun intended, it appears to emphasize the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And the latter portion of the book of Matthew zeroes in on why Jesus came, the things he came to do. And you and I, from the Gospel of Mark need to understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. When I expound the Gospel of Mark, I begin that exposition in the middle of the book looking at this miracle to set the context not only for that miracle but the context for the entire book. And so the 
matter of context in many ways depends upon the text about which you are uh, speaking. Uh, let me draw your attention now uh, to another text in the Gospel of Mark. It comes in chapter 5, and I'm not going to read the whole text because it's a very familiar text, but it's the healing of a demoniac. The disciples go uh, to the area of uh, the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes, and uh, there is a demoniac who exists among the tombs in this place. And uh, he had once been shackled with chains, but he broke the chains in his great strength, and he, he gnashed and uh, on himself and uh, bruised himself and struck himself with rocks, etc. But when he saw the Lord, Lord Jesus landing on the beach, he ran down on the beach and fell before the Lord Jesus. And Jesus delivered him from the demons. And uh, the demons, which were legion, went into the swine that were in the area, and the swine rushed into the sea and were drowned. As a result, uh, the people who were there went into the uh, local villages, and uh, the villagers came out to see Jesus. And when they came out to see Jesus, they found the demoniac sitting with Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Now, uh, this is a tremendous story, and it takes some time to go through the story and to tell the story. But how do I set the context for this story? I simply set the context uh, for this story by saying, uh, this story appears in the beginning of the book of Mark, which zeroes in on affirming who Jesus is. And this story is another story that tells us of the power of Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who is the Lord over the invisible spirit world that's all around us. That's all I have to say about the context in this particular case. And so I say to you, developing the context uh, usually does not take as long as uh, we would surmise. And we ought not to take away from the main text by spending too much time on developing context. And context, the matter of context, depends upon the specific text. Uh, one text may require a little bit more context, but another text requires very little context. Remember these things, and remember that setting context is part of the process of explanation in the whole matter of delivering a sermon. And if you're using a sequential outline, and you're setting context in one of the pieces of your sequential outline, you don't have a lot of time anyway, and so you cannot spend a great deal of time in setting context. Uh, remember these points about setting context and the connection with the idea of explanation. Thanks for listening.